Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. The U.S. Department of Justice recently revised its guidelines for, quote, evaluation of corporate compliance programs, end quote. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence sits down with Joseph Grunfest to discuss his perspective on the new guidelines and the implications for corporations. Let's listen in. Joe, it's a privilege and honor. I've known you for a number of years. Uh, one of the non-taxable benefits of my being at the U.S. Attorney's Office and being at Goldman Sachs. Joe, obviously, is one of the most distinguished law school professors in the United States. What may be lesser known about him is his term as an SEC commissioner, uh, his partnership at one of Washington, D.C.'s leading law firms, his entrepreneurial activities in founding uh, Stanford University's Institute for Training members of public company boards, as well as the boards of portfolio companies, when there was no education system and was no program around financial literacy, the rules of governance, the types of responsibilities and duties that board members have, Joe recognized that there was a gap in the marketplace and filled it. So it's a special honor. I've often sought his counsel. I've never been steered wrong. And it's great to have a conversation with you today, Joe, on a very important subject. I'm at your disposal. Joe, I'd actually love to do a little role play with you, okay? And um, maybe you can be the general counsel, and I will uh, be the either chair of the audit committee or whatever committee there is on the board. And I'd like to ask you a few questions. So why don't you... Come to me with a particular situation, and I think it'd be helpful for the audience to hear a little bit of back and forth between you and myself about the types of questions on a pragmatic level that get asked within a within a company. And I think there'll be some insightful, we'll call it uh, bits of advice here around a couple of real politic and very, very pragmatic situations that will be helpful to organizations to simplify, I'll use your term, the process of figuring out what would be the next steps and why. Sure. And and what I'll do is I'll I'll respond with a situation that has profound ambiguity and where there is no clear answer. Excellent. Perfect. It's easy for me to be profoundly ambiguous. Well, it's it's also the way the world works. (laughs) It's the way the world works. So go ahead, Joe. Report to me. You've asked for a half hour of my time. Okay, so we have a situation, whether it's, you know, in the Middle East or the Philippines or somewhere in Africa or China, where we've discovered millions of dollars of payments to consultants, and we can't even verify the existence of the organizations to which these payments are going. All right, our internal audit group went out, uh, they had a look at these payments, and They can't find corresponding recipients at these addresses, and we can't figure out what this money is going to. So there you go. That's what I've just told you. What do you ask me? Okay, Joe, are you are you certain this has been going on? Yes. In fact, we can, you know, here are the checks, here are the payments, here are the wires. And, uh, you know, we've looked at 536 transactions. There are 42 that we can't line up. We've hired investigators, and they have no idea where these payments went, and they total five million dollars. Joe, is this what do you suspect was going on here? 
Well, there are multiple possibilities, all right? One possibility is we are the victims of embezzlement, that some of our employees are actually stealing money from us by sending it to, you know, phony accounts for consulting services, all right? And, you know, there's no bribery that's going on, you know, one way or another, and they're stealing money from us. The other possibility is this money is is sort of, you know, dropping into a black hole and winding up in the pocket of some minister in a ministry with whom we're negotiating for a contract. Right now, we don't know. What do we know, Joe? I know you said we hired investigators. Have people been interviewed? Has there been any further information here? We have interviewed all the people that are involved with the wires and the other transactions on our end, and everybody says that they were simply following instructions, and to the best of their knowledge, it was for the consulting services that were described. So somebody is lying to us. There are eight possibilities, and we don't know whom. And so tell me, beyond hiring some investigators, what are you, what are you advising the board to do here? Well, obviously, continuing the investigation to get the best possible result that's one possibility. And I think we're at a stage, given the size of, given the nature of the geography and given the amount of money that's involved, we might want to consider self-reporting. I can see the argument that it's premature. I can also see the argument that this is a, an appropriate time at which to do that self-reporting, given potential consequences down the road. But Joe, what, what does this self-reporting mean? Does it mean all of a sudden the FBI is going to be in our offices? They're going to be subpoenas? Well, that's a great question. Let me explain. Let me explain the range of possible outcomes, and I can't guarantee what will happen. That we would pick up the phone, we'll call our contacts at the local U.S. Attorney's Office. We will tell them everything that I just told you. We will give them all of the information that we have. We will hold back absolutely nothing. We will promise to continue the investigation because we need to get to the bottom of this too, because whether it's embezzlement or whether it's illegal bribery, we don't want this going on and we want to put to a, a stop to it. Among the risks we have is that once we report this to the government, the government will take over the investigation, they will deputize all of our resources, and they'll ask us to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars over two or three years investigating things that we think are unreasonable, but we won't be able to say no because the government will then say we're no longer cooperating. So the risk that we run is that by self-reporting at this stage, we lose control of our ability to manage the inquiry. On the other hand, if we don't go in, a whistleblower could beat us, or we miss the opportunity to solve the problem for, you know, for ourselves and to get full, full credit for cooperation. Joe, do we have any idea who this whistleblower could be? Can we find out who it is? Uh, whistleblowers are able to be entirely confidential to the SEC. And if there's going to be a whistleblower, it's most likely one of the eight people that we think have knowledge of what went on here. And we would assume that one of the eight has lied. We just don't know which one, or at least one of the eight has lied. So, Joe, this may already be a matter that has been brought to the attention of the authorities. Now, yes, sir. How do we quantify that possibility? 
I have no idea. Thank you for asking. No, that's 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 really true. In in these, you you'd have to form some kind of subjective opinion as to what's the probability that somebody involved here would know to go to the U.S. attorney or the SEC uh, with with you know information that could lead to you know a case against us, the entity. And of course, what you're kind of telling me, if they haven't done it already, they might do it in the in the future. Yes, sir. Particularly if we start investigating this. How many people know about this? Uh, it would be more than the eight that we investigated because we obviously had to talk to more than those. So my guess is that, you know, in the company as a whole, there are 30 people that are aware we're conducting an investigation and that they would have material knowledge of the issues we're exploring. So the bottom line is we're sitting on something that is not a secret. That's what you're telling me, Joe. If more than one person knows it, it's not a secret. So like many things, uh, look, there's a risk-benefit calculus we have to do here. We're also a public company. And have we had any press inquiry? Anything come out yet? No, sir. And if we report this, aren't we obligated possibly to also share this information with our investors? The answer to that is yes, but given the tenuous nature of the information, the amounts involved, and the possibility that there was no bribery, uh, I think I could recommend that one course of action would be to self-report to the authorities, but not to do a disclosure in our case or cues. Even though the amounts look material, uh, you're talking about millions of dollars at this point. Uh, yes, but there's a probability that's associated with those millions of dollars. And given that we don't know where this lines up, I could easily see us reaching the conclusion that it makes sense to self to self report, but not to report in our SEC filings. And that and that, by the way, is not a rare conclusion that companies reach. And by the way, I'll add an editorial note: uh, as some companies have uh, experienced. When a whistleblower comes forward, one must be very, very thoughtful and confer closely with counsel whether or not um, you try to find out who that whistleblower is uh, because of a variety of ways that regulators might look at your efforts to identify who the whistleblower is. Right, because you don't want to be accused of retaliation. Uh, Exactly right. So, Joe, just... Maybe you can tell me, how do you think this could have happened? We have the best auditors. We have a terrific internal audit team. We have compliance testing. The people that we have in this region are people who have been with the company for 15, 20 years. They're supervisors. They've been careful. They know the rules. They've been through the training. How could this have happened? Human beings are human. Circumstances change. For all we know, one of them is going through a difficult divorce and needs money. For all we know, one of them has, has, has a sick relative and needs money. For all we know, one of them is being blackmailed. There, there are 120 different reasons why, why people do things of this sort. And, you know, that, that, that in a certain sense is a question as to which we may never have the answer or when we do get the answer, it will be pretty far down the road.
we, we first have to figure out who was doing it and what they were doing, and then we might figure out why. And how we didn't catch this, Joe, because if I'm the U.S. attorney, I'm wondering, with all our sophisticated technology, our controls, this looks like a breakdown in our well, you know, let me defend. Let me defend the organization. We had the right technology. We had the right controls. We did it right. Every organization is susceptible to wrongdoing by a trusted insider. Every organization. All right. There are a variety of controls that can limit the amount of damage that the insider can do. But all of us are susceptible. Every corporate entity is susceptible to, to wrongdoing by an insider. Um, that's just the nature of the beast. And, you know, when you run into these situations, sometimes the next investigative step is to say, all right, here are these eight people. Can we learn anything about personal stresses? All right. Um, are they going through difficult divorces? Is there illness in the family? Is there something that would give them an incentive to, you know, pay bribes or, or to embezzle money? Um, it's, it's very, very unfortunate, but sometimes you have to look in that direction, too. We will be right back. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. To learn more about RAIN, go to www.rainnetwork.com slash join to become a member today. All right. Well, this is going to be expensive for us either way. It sounds to me like what you're advising is to try to cut our losses here. And the least expensive, not just in terms of money, but reputationally damaging. So, Joe, help me here, because if I'm sitting in the U.S. attorney's seat, you know, whether I dispatch FBI agents, start serving subpoenas, you know, might very well depend upon their confidence that we are going to do the right job here. We're going to bottom this out and we're going to keep them apprised of what our findings are. Do we have the right law firm to help us in this investigation? Do we have the right internal people? Do we have the right external resources? So, you know, when they see the amount of effort that we're putting into this, they can have a degree of confidence that we are sincere in our efforts. Well, that's exactly right. When you, when you, if and when you finally do go to the authorities, you want to go with the team where they have confidence in your ability to self-execute and they don't think that they have a need to look over your shoulder, control the rest of the investigation. You, you want to be able to demonstrate you did the right thing to this point and you've got the right team and you can trust us. If there's a problem, not only do we want to find it, we're appropriately motivated, but we have the capacity to find it. We're, we're, we're appropriately armed. You know, in, in this hypothetical we're discussing, you know, the way, the way I framed it, it really is likely a question of when do you go to the authorities, not if you go to the authorities. Look, the U.S. attorney we have here, you know, everything I've seen from him or her in the last three years, this is someone who definitely has political ambitions. And I can imagine the headlines that would come out from this. Do you think we have a reasonable ability to keep this confidential until we know what we're doing? Or do you think there are going to be leaks out of the government? Well, leaks have happened. And leaks happen for a variety of different reasons. And we just have to be ready for the leak. That's that's something that we can't control. Um, you know, in some situations, you put together, you know, contingent press releases where, you know, you're, you, you basically have it in the can. You know what you're going to say if the information leaks. 
in many situations, it comes as a surprise. You've got to scramble and you've got to pull something together. But, you know, one of the risks of going to the government is that there will be a leak. You, you, you take that risk. That's part of the bargain. The government will swear up and down that it doesn't leak. So, Joe, a great hypothetical. You did it with a whistleblower, but I want to return to there are no secrets. And if I could just quickly summarize, obviously, you did a hypothetical with a whistleblower, but there can also be a WikiLeaks style release of emails. We've seen that play out. We have seen disenchanted uh, employees who become anonymous sources to the press and tip them off. Uh, we've also seen, you know, various situations where the government, because so many businesses are global, they may pick up some information in an otherwise authorized means of surveillance. And we've also had competitors who have come forward, you know, to, you know, sort of highlight to appropriate authorities for either legitimate reasons and self-reporting or possibly for competitive advantage reasons, uh, leaks to either the authorities or to to the press. And And let me add one more. The press and the press very often does a fantastic job and they deserve more credit. Look, for example, at the work that the Financial Times has done with the most recent German fraud with Wirecard. All right. Where they were yelling about potential fraud at this company for a year before the German authorities and others finally figured out, hey, there's really something there. And the other thing is short sellers. All right. Very often short sellers, totally unreliable, manipulative information. I get it, but they are not always wrong. All right. Look at what they figured out with luck and coffee. Okay. Uh, So so recognizing that there are other powerful forces in the market that have real incentives and are very intelligent about finding out about your problems. And you, you should respect them because they're not always wrong. Right. And the most successful short sellers are the ones who not only come to certain conclusions based on research, analyses, possibly access to former employees, etc., but who basically build a book and sell that book into the public market, whether it's through a report or possibly through a news source and sharing information. And I'm glad you brought or, or Or by going to the government. Or by going to the government. Let me go back to another important point that you made, which is to sort of understand precedence uh, in terms of the enforcement actions and how that becomes a tool to educate organizations, not only in terms of their compliance program, but their reporting obligations and sort of what what facts are relevant to the government. Maybe because I know you do a great job together with Sullivan and Cromwell, have a wonderful database at Stanford Law School. Uh, I guess, co-sponsors or co-hosts with S&C about enforcement actions in the uh, FCPA arena. Maybe you can provide some insights uh, to the audience about how to think about precedence of these enforcement actions. Sure. One of the things I try to teach my students is that when you're negotiating these settlements, there, there are a variety of ways to look at it. And Usually, not always, but usually the most effective approach is to, you know, uh, approach it a little bit like you're, you're, you're bargaining for a used car at a used car lot. And you sort of say, hey, wait a minute, if, if somebody just bought that Camaro for X, all right, and somebody else just, just bought that, you know, Corolla for Y, 
then, you know, this car that you're trying to sell me that has mileage in between those two should go for Z. He'll turn around and say, no, but this car is in better condition. The paint job is better. And then you turn around, yeah, but the upholstery is off. Okay. And it's a little bit like that kind of a settlement or that kind of a negotiation. And, and, you know, in many situations, it's an argument about, well, you know, this guy was more senior, this guy was more junior, there were more dollars involved. So it's, it's a multidimensional comparative game where, you know, the outcome as a practical matter can depend upon who's the person on the other side of the table. Um, how strong is your client in terms of the ability to withstand all right, litigation and the threat of litigation in this kind of a context? What kind of business is it? And at the end of the day, there's, in my experience, there's a gray zone. There's, there's sort of like a zone of reasonableness for a settlement. And if you come in within that gray zone, okay, um, yeah, sure, you want to get the best possible deal for your client within that zone of reasonableness. And, and in my experience, the art form is to be clear with your client and to say, look, here's the zone that I think we're operating in. I doubt we'll be able to get a deal better than this. And I don't think we're going to get hurt more than that. And here's why. And now what we're going to try to do is negotiate something within that zone that's as favorable as we can. But I want to I calibrate your expectations. If I do better than this, all right, then that's a real win. And here's why. If we do worse than this, that's really going to be unfortunate. And here's why. I know you've also highlighted the notion of disgorgement of profits. And maybe you can explain how the government looks at what I'll refer to as the fruit of the poisonous tree. Well, disgorgement is an interesting word. There was a recent Supreme Court opinion, Liu versus the SEC, and I'll get to that in a second. Generally, when you want to settle a case, all right, and, and if what you want to do is you want to get the best possible result, a declination, so there'll be no case actually to settle, all right, nobody's going to prosecute you. What, what they're going to insist on, in addition to a full investigation and early self-reporting, is that you identify the people who are responsible for the wrongdoing and you fire them, all right? You get rid of them. You distance yourself from them and that you cooperate in any prosecution that the government may have of those individuals. In addition to that, they'll ask you to pay a civil money penalty, all right, or other penalty, and they'll ask you to give up any profits or, you know, any calculation of earnings that you've made in, you know, the form of a disgorgement. So in the case of Cognizant, they had to disgorge roughly $19 million and they had to pay a civil money penalty to the SEC of $6 million. Now it gets more complicated. Recent Supreme Court opinion in Liu says that in order for the SEC to get engorgement, disgorgement in a civil matter filed in civil court, the disgorgement usually will have to go to the people that have been harmed. You'll have to return the money. But in FCPA cases, to whom do you turn the money? There's no, there's no traditional victim of fraud. Do you, do you, you know, in some sense, give the money back to the government that was defrauded? Do you know, if, if, if you paid a bribe to a Chinese government official, do you get the X million dollars back and you say, all right, well, write a check to Xi Jinping. 
That's probably not what they have in mind. So this notion of equitable disgorgement as applied to FCPA cases is a little bit of a head scratcher. And the other thing that they require is that in the event of disgorgement, you'd be able to deduct legitimate expenses. And there's essentially no useful precedent about how you calculate a legitimate expense in connection with otherwise illegal conduct. So, so all of that is, is stuff that's up in the air. And, you know, my guess is that if you're looking for the equivalent of, of a declination, the government's going to say, look, here's the number that we need. Let's not argue about it. You've got to agree not to appeal on any of those grounds. That's likely where it's headed. And the reason I'm spending time uh, to get your insights, Joe, is while the guidelines are issued in terms of how to judge effective compliance programs, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of other factors around that. Because when the government is judging an effective compliance program, they're not really doing it prophylactically. They're doing it after an event. All of these factors that you have pointed out, the timeliness of disclosures, you know, whether certain activity ended up being profitable for the entity, whether there was full cooperation post the investigation, whether you brought the right resources to bear. All of those things are extraordinarily relevant and they're not even footnoted in the, uh, in the guidance. No, that's no, that's exactly right. And that's another reason why whenever you get involved in these situations, you want to have an experienced guide. You, you, you don't want your neurosurgery being done by an intern where it's his first procedure. Joe, let me, uh, in the little bit of time we have remaining, let me quickly switch tacks. You spend a lot of time making sure that the boards of directors of public companies and portfolio companies and private equity are educated about not only their responsibilities and their obligations, the governance responsibilities, but really, you know, what, what's going on in the market, how regulators think, et cetera. Maybe you can talk a little bit about sort of the advice you actually give to the boards of directors of what it means to be a member of a board in today's environment with all the regulatory pressures, the reputational pressures, the opportunities for to disrupt day-to-day operations. And, you know, look, one of, one of the business principles that's stuck with me at Goldman Sachs was the notion that reputations are very, very hard to win, but can be lost in a single moment. No, that's, that's an extraordinarily accurate insight. You know, one approach that I take is I tell directors and executives or I suggest to directors and executives that they learn to look at every decision um, in hindsight. I'm going to make this decision today. I'm going to be judged on it three years from now. What's it going to look like if this heads south three years from now? Uh, will I be able to defend and explain my decision that turned out to be a wrong one as being entirely reasonable and legitimate given the information that we had at this time? And will people be inclined to believe me? Now, in many situations, that's not going to be a clear yes or no answer. There'll be a spectrum. And the question is, how comfortable are you with your point on the spectrum? These, these, are, these are all highly subjective situations, but, but the key thing, the general rule is look at the decision you're making today in hindsight and from a perspective in which it turns out to be wrong. 
If the decision turns out to be right, we got nothing to worry about. Why are we having this conversation? It's what does it look like if you're making a mistake? Will people give you the benefit of the doubt? Will they forgive you? On the other hand, if it turns out to be a mistake and people say, well, that was unforgivable, then you're in a different boat. This has been a great conversation, and I know it'll be highly appreciated by the audience. All I can do, David, is thank you for the opportunity and thank anyone uh, who was uh, brave and bold enough to listen to this whole thing. Well, and I'll commend the website on the FCPA. I'll do a shout out there. Anyway, Joe, thank you so much for a terrific conversation. More than a pleasure, and thank you. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and would like to learn more about RAIN, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a member today. Music